following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Good morning. Um, I'm very uh, glad to be back uh, with you all. Um, we had a great time at St. Joe's with Andrew last Sunday, um, but very glad to be home. Um, and last um, um, Monday uh, was a significant anniversary for Crossroads Church. Uh, whether you know it or not, um, 10 years ago on September the 26th was the rebirth of Crossroads Church. Um, we started, uh, well, there was another church that met in this building um, for a long time, and it, uh, well, it died. And Crossroads Church was uh, born in its place and was um, established on September 26, 2012. So that's a significant uh, anniversary in my mind. Um, it also uh, it falls on my birthday, so I won't forget what day it was. <laughs> that's so I will always remember the date. Um, so anyway, praise the Lord for that. Um, what a wonderful blessing it is to be a church family uh, with you all. Um, so we are going back to Luke chapter 5 this morning. We're going to look at verses 33 through 39. And that's on page 861 in the Pew Bibles, if that's helpful to you. And I have to admit, um, before we get too far, that one of the things that I both love and hate about Scripture is how the Lord uses it to humble me. Everybody loves being humbled, right? It's a favorite, favorite thing, right? Well, it could be yours, and you could say that. It isn't mine. I hate it. Um, but it seems to happen often uh, and needs to happen over and over again. Um, and the Lord does that, and I and I I love that because I know it's from the Lord, and I know that He loves me uh, and you, and it's the best for us. Um, so our passage for today is one of those passages that the Lord has used um, in my life um, for that very purpose. So let's look at it, and you can all share in my embarrassment. Um, fortunately, this isn't a one-point sermon, so there's other things to talk about other than me. So let's look at Luke 5, uh, start at verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. 
If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put in fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather together in your name to read and and talk about and think about your word. We thank you, Lord, that these are your words and you have instruction for us and encouragement and warning. And Lord, we pray that you would do that work amongst us this morning, that your spirit would speak, that you would fill this Fill this empty, broken cup with your spirit and pour out on your people that we might know you more and the power of your life and death and resurrection. We love you, Lord, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here is Jesus with his disciples at a party. Um, now this may be the party that Levi threw. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, Matthew was called by Jesus and then and then threw a big party at his house for all of his friends. Um, it, it, it appears that way in Luke's gospel. It may be another party at another time. It really doesn't matter. Um, all we know is that Jesus was at a gathering with his disciples and they were eating and drinking instead of fasting and somebody questioned Jesus about it. So I think it would be smart for us to start with the basics. What is fasting? Um, This is a good question Um, and a question that often gets asked. How should we fast? What should we do? Should we fast? Is that something for the New Testament church to do? Is that an Old Testament thing? What even is it? Um, Simply put, fasting is the purposeful denial of food for a time as a religious duty going without food for spiritual benefit. Um, Some people uh, fast during Lent, during the Lenten season, which is a Catholic tradition. Uh, um, It's counterproductive, in my personal opinion, because uh, how many people do you know that that, uh, they fast for Lent? I'm giving up chocolate for Lent. Right, it's 40 days, right? And they tell you that. I'm giving up chocolate for Lent. And they have just received the reward that they were seeking, which is just your attention. They got it, right? So um, anyway, uh, not a spiritual benefit. When I was a youth pastor 800 years ago, we had, um, we had an event every year called the 30-hour famine. Um, and we would, uh, the youth group would get together and fast for 30 hours um, and use it as a fundraiser to send, uh, I can't even remember the name of the outfit, um, but we sent money to starving kids in Africa. I guess that was the, we, we got to experience a little bit of what some people um, in most of the world go through all the time. Um, I'm not sure there was a lot of spiritual benefit, but we always had a good time. Um, with a lock-in and running around in the church in the dark with teenagers. I mean, what better time could you have? Uh, so uh, that's, that's how we used to, to do that. 
So the question really is, I think, does the Bible command us to fast? We don't talk about it very often here, so you probably think, well, no, because we don't talk about it very much. Um, So in the Old Testament, there is one command to fast, um, only one, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And you can look that up in your spare time. That's Leviticus chapter 20. Um, uh, The ESV doesn't use the word fasting in that, but it says uh, to afflict yourselves, uh, which is was um, going without food. Um, The early church did practice the discipline of fasting, as you can see in the book of Acts, um, but it was not a requirement. Um, Fasting is not commanded to the church, Um, but it's not forbidden either. Jesus himself gave guidelines for those that do fast in Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And I'll read this to you, and then you can think about your whole Lenten fast thing. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head. And wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Doesn't sound very much like telling all your friends you gave up chocolate for Lent, does it? So is Jesus commanding his followers to fast? Nope. Is Jesus forbidding his followers to fast? Nope. So... That, that means in an area such as this, we have the option. If you choose to fast, go for it. Follow the guidelines that Jesus gives here. It's not for attention. It's not for uh, the benefit of other people looking at you and saying, oh, how spiritual are you? It's personal discipline, and it's between you and the Father. Jesus is reminding us that fasting is between us and the Lord, not as a show, of spiritual greatness for those around us to see and admire. He's simply saying, if you choose to fast, keep it to yourself. It's between you and the Father. So I don't want to see any Facebook posts about what you gave up for Lent this year. (sighs) So the disciples of John and the disciples of Pharisees didn't have the same freedom that Jesus taught his disciples and continues to teach. They had regular fasting days and specific times every day where they had to pray. And they were seen as the more spiritual people in their culture. They're more disciplined. They're closer to God. So when Jesus comes along, the expectation was that he and his disciples would be even more spiritual. You're the Messiah, right? So you're going to take everything that we're doing and crank it up a notch. Well, yeah, he did. But not like that, right? They, they thought that he and his disciples would be even more spiritual, even more disciplined than John the Baptist and the Pharisees and all their disciples. But here he is at a party eating and drinking. Now, we don't know if this was on one of their specific fast days, but it could have been. That would make sense why they would draw this parallel. Those guys are fasting and look at you, right? Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. So a couple of things to notice here. 
Um, the first is that Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. Now, this is a reference made to a statement made by John the Baptist himself about Jesus that's recorded in John chapter 3, verses 29 and 30. This is subtle, um, but it's still there. John the Baptist, whom Jesus was just being compared to by, by people, John the Baptist said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So when Jesus uses this picture of celebration while the bridegroom is among the wedding guests, he's saying, hey, you know, you're a guy, John the Baptist. He said that I'm the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom is with the guests, you don't fast, you feast. The days are coming, and you're going to fast when the bridegroom is taken away. Jesus is the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. It's a beautiful picture of love and dedication, of commitment and service. The second thing to notice in this statement is when Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. So the phrase taken away from them um, can also be rendered in English torn away from them. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus intimates his coming bloody death on the cross. And when those days came, there certainly was fasting among the disciples. But while Jesus was with them, it wasn't a time for fasting. It was a time for feasting. Fasting is associated with mourning, with sorrow, but feasting with celebration and joy. What Jesus and his disciples were doing was the right thing. They're celebrating that Messiah had come and they were enjoying the freedom that he brings. Now, as it turns out, the rules that the religious leaders had put in place to govern the people and their religion was off base and empty anyway. And it had been for a long, long time. Isaiah 58, 1 through 10, describes this tension between the empty religious ritual and the true fasting that the Lord delights in. I'm going to read this passage and you can think, does this still happen is this still a reality? Does this still happen in me? Is this a reality in, in my life? Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? 
Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and to hide yourself and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then you then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. You know what that sounds like to me? Love your neighbor as yourself. So when we put on this spiritual fasting thing and deny ourselves food or drink or whatever for some spiritual benefit. The Lord's saying, don't do that. Love your neighbor. That's the fast that I desire. Help those who need help. That's the kind of fasting that I want. Matthew Henry wrote, Jesus insisted most upon that which is the soul of fasting, the mortification of sin, the crucifying of the flesh, and the living a life of self-denial, which is as much better than fasting and corporal penances as mercy is better than sacrifice. Over and over and over again, we can see in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, to wipe out the law, but to fulfill it to remind people of the spirit of the law. When the law says you shall not kill or you shall not murder, Jesus said anyone who hates their brother in their heart has murdered him already. It's not about did you actually kill someone. It's do you hate someone in your heart. That's the spirit of the law. And Jesus cares about the spirit of the fast. Denying yourself and loving others. Those who were questioning Jesus about fasting were expecting him and his disciples to follow in the footsteps of the only spiritual leadership that they knew. And that was to follow the empty ascetic ritualism that they've experienced. Just empty religion. And so Jesus gave them a parable. He said, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires the new for he says the old is good. Now, here's the part that's especially humbling to me. Um, 
I'm just going to get it out of the way. This is not about me. This, this little scripture isn't about me. And that's the part I have a problem with. <laughs> As a younger man, I was very impatient. Glad I'm over that. Uh, <laughs> but I was very impatient with the church, specifically. I had ideas of what the church should be like and what it should do. And I got very tired of waiting around for more funerals so that things could change. And I've said that even within the last few weeks. You want things to change in your church? All you need is a few more funerals. And that's horrible. And I'm sorry. When I expressed my frustrations to those who knew me and I, people that I trusted for good counsel, I often got the response, you just can't pour new wine into old wineskins. What does that mean? When used like that, and my interpretation of this was that me and my ideas, this newfangled church thing that I was trying to do was new wine, and the, the church I was in at the time was an old wineskin, and they just couldn't handle it. And in order for me to do what I wanted to do and, 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 and all of that, I was going to have to go start fresh with a new wineskin because the old wineskin couldn't handle it. And in truth, that's partly why I live in West Ospie. So just so you understand this picture that Jesus is painting about new wines and, and, and old skins and that sort of thing, uh, Jesus was a chemist. Uh, Jesus invented chemistry, just in case you don't believe me. Um, new wine, as it ferments, gives off carbon dioxide as yeast digests the sugar in the grape juice. If you put new wine that is going through this fermentation process in a closed container and put a stopper on it, the container will explode because the gas is it's creating gas and it's trying to get out. So new wine skins were made out of fresh skins that are still stretchy, still elastic and could expand while this fermentation process is happening. But old wine skins were dried out and no longer flexible. So new wine in an old skin would expand and explode and ruin the skin and dump out the wine, ruining both. Okay? Picture makes sense? I actually learned that lesson when I visited the Sap House Meadery in Center Ospie one time just to see what that was about when they were first opening up. And Ash walked me through and showed me the whole process and how they've got these little things on their barrels so carbon dioxide could get out. It was fascinating. I don't like mead, but it was fascinating. So what does this picture of new wine and old skins have to do with me? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's the humbling part. See, the contrast that Jesus is drawing is not between personal preferences of style within a church. He's contrasting the old, empty, ritualistic, and self-imposed rule-based attempt at justification by following the law with a new justification by grace through faith 
and the freedom that that brings. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not your church prefers an organ or a guitar to lead worship. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not your church prefers you to wear jeans and untuck your shirt or to wear a suit or a robe. I never had the robe problem. The expectation was that Jesus just brought a new flavor of the same old stuff. The same, uh, the old wine that they preferred. That's what it says. Um, uh, someone after drinking uh, new wine prefers the old. They say the old is better. It's just because they're used to it. That's, that's what Jesus meant when he says that. He's not saying old is good or new is good. Just saying everybody's got their preferences. And they the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist preferred the old way of empty asceticism, which is just self-denial for no real benefit. Instead, Jesus brought something totally new, a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. That was totally new. This is a faith marked by freedom and feasting and celebration and joy. And nobody was used to that. And I think that idea seems kind of passe, even now. Listen to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the, the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is what Jesus came to do, to establish a new covenant through faith in him for the forgiveness of sin. Not obedience to the law, faith in Jesus. The disciples' feasting would turn to fasting when Jesus was torn from them and crucified. But their sorrow turned to joy when he rose from the grave. And now he lives within us. 
never to be torn away again. There is no occasion for fasting. His disciples have his spirit living within them, within us, and he will never leave us and never forsake us. So now when we fast, if we fast, the only sorrow is sorrow over our own sin. Not to earn God's favor, not to make him like us more or approve of us, but to humble ourselves, to remind us of our dependence on him and his grace. We seek that which is the soul of fasting, the mortification of sin, putting sin to death, the crucifying of our flesh, to put our flesh and its desires on the cross, the living a life of self-denial, which is as much better than fasting and corporal penances as mercy is better than sacrifice. Amen? That's a tough amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. That through faith in Christ, our sins might be washed away. That we will be forever forgiven and made your children. Lord, I, I ask for your help that we would truly sorrow over our sin and celebrate our salvation through faith in Jesus. We ask for your help by the power of your spirit to mortify our flesh, to crucify our sin and our desire to disobey you. It's constant in all of us. We need your help. We thank you that you have forgiven every sin that we have ever committed, are committing, or will commit. We thank you that your justification is complete through faith in Jesus. Just if I'd never sin and never will again. Help us to live like that, Father. By the power of your Spirit, set us free from our sin and its consequences. We love you, Lord, and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.